Ever wonder what it's like to be a foreign journalist in Israel? Today we go behind the scenes with one of the Foreign Press Corps' most insightful members for a unique conversation on life as a journalist in one of the most sought-after and reported-about places across the globe. Does Israel get a fair shake in the media? Which are the more interesting stories to be found in this part of the world if a reporter wants to keep their edge? And where should a journalist make their home if he or she wants to truly understand Israel when covering the region? Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? All that and more in today's episode of Tipping Point. Welcome to Tipping Point, the podcast on all things Israel. I'm your host, Talia Dekel. Remember, you can find all of our previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. On today's episode, I get to do the opposite of what I usually do, which is try to get foreign reporters to listen to the podcast. I've succeeded in getting one of those foreign reporters on the podcast, so well done to me. Michael Arnold is not your average journalist covering Israel. The outgoing bureau chief of Bloomberg's Israel offices has kindly agreed to grant me this farewell interview before he unfortunately makes his way to Singapore this July as the agency's economics editor for Southeast Asia. Before arriving in Israel this time around, Michael was with Bloomberg in Hong Kong after working for both the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones, also in Asia. Previously, Michael was managing editor of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency in the U.S. and worked for the Jerusalem Post. Michael, it's such a pleasure having you in the studio. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here. So are you getting any more sleep since the last time we talked? Um, I never sleep well. Uh, <laughs> partly, it's, uh, partly it's news, partly it's uh, too much caffeine, and partly it's a young baby. So <laughs> put those three together and no, I'm not getting a lot of sleep. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So as bureau chief, you're in a bit of a tricky position. Uh, you have to please your editors abroad while ensuring the reporting on the ground is done accurately and well. Uh, as a news agency, you're also expected to put out a lot of material and fairly quickly. Uh, what's the hardest part of your job? Geez, um, that's a tough question. I would say, you know, the hardest part is pleasing all the various constituencies that we have, which are, you know, the readers, obviously, but also the various levels of editing. Um, you know, we, we report to Dubai, um, Uh, several editors there. Uh, we also, depending on you know on the topic, could be reporting to people in in Europe or the states. And everybody has a different perspective on the Israel story. Uh, very often, people have strong feelings uh, about the Israel story and strong feelings about how it should be covered. And uh, especially when it comes to kind of big picture stories. And um, we have a very uh, you could say vigorous uh, internal debate uh, about how to cover things. Um, You know, uh, even within the Israel Bureau, people have uh, uh, strong feelings that, that you know, uh, often conflict. But I think, you know, if you look at the final product, that these debates enrich the story. And, um, you know, for example, one story that I can think of, we did uh, – we wrote about this company called Magal, which uh, built the, the uh, security fence around the Gaza Strip. Right. So when, when Trump was elected and he was looking to build a fence uh, in the U.S., shares of Magal shot up because they, they, they might get the contract. So we wrote this kind of, um, uh, you know, gee whiz story about Magal. And one of the uh, editors in Dubai said, well, look, from the Palestinians' perspective, this company has built uh, a fence around them, put them in, put them in a jail, which, you know, uh, was something that we hadn't 
you know, looked at it from that perspective, and I think it enriched the story to have that to have that perspective. It doesn't always go so smoothly, but when it does, it it, it helps the story. I think. Okay. Um, do you think that working as a Jewish journalist, or maybe even, God forbid, a Zionist journalist, <laughs> if you describe yourself as one, selling news to the audience around the world poses more of a challenge? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, I've always been Jewish, but my views on politics here have changed over time. Uh, you know, I've, I've been more left-wing at times, more, more right-wing at times, depending on, you know, what I see happening on the ground. As far as Zionism, you know, it's interesting because that's kind of become a dirty word these days. Uh, you know, to me, Zionism means that you believe that the Jews should have a state in, in their ancient homeland. It doesn't mean you support the settlements. It doesn't mean that you are a Kahanist or whatever. It means you think the Jews should have a state. So, yes, I think that the Jews should have a state uh, and that they are a people that, that deserves uh, self-determination. It doesn't necessarily flow from that that, you know, we would write hardcore right-wing stories or not. But, you know, when we have these these vigorous internal debates, coming at it as a Jewish journalist, do they take my opinions in a different way? I, perhaps, uh, you know, we, we have, you know, other Jews in the Israel office who see things, you know, very, very differently. And uh, so... Um, you know, I would say that my politics are not determined by my religious background, but rather by years of watching the situation here. Um, also, I think it's really helped that I've worked abroad. Um, I think, you know, it helps to put these issues in, in perspective, whether it's the corruption allegations against Netanyahu, uh, and you can compare them to, you know, things, you know, for example, in Asia, my fiance is is Filipina. So when I try to explain to her what's going on with the you know, the investigations into Bibi, and I say, well, he, he got gifts of cigars. And she says, but in my country, they give yachts and mansions. You're going to get rid of the prime minister because of cigars. So, you know, I think there is a slightly different or broader perspective um, from having worked overseas a bit. Interesting. Um, so Israel is considered a divisive topic in and of itself these days for some reason. Do you think the foreign press covers it fairly? Um. I would say that they try to cover it fairly and they think they're covering it fairly. Like they don't set out to cover it unfairly or to distort it. I think, you know, for sure Israel's under a microscope um, much more than any other country in the region. And Why they, is that? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, Matty Friedman wrote this great piece a couple years ago trying to analyze it. And I, I think there was a lot of wisdom in, in, in what he wrote. I think many journalists are Jews, and and they they tend to be you know Jews as a whole tend to be very very self critical, mm -hmm. uh, and and so, and to have you know really uh, high or even extreme standards of morality, uh, and this feeling like, you know, it doesn't matter what the other side does, our side has to be pure, and and I think that 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 uh, affects a lot of the reporting. I think also you know most of the foreign press corps is based in Jerusalem, and when I when I meet with them. They're really focused on the conflict almost exclusively. To them, you know, Israel is really defined by the conflict with the Palestinians and until that conflict is resolved, you know, Israel itself can't really rest easy. Whereas I think that's a really myopic view. I mean, I'm based in Tel Aviv uh, this time around and at Bloomberg, you know, first of all, many of our readers tend to be, you know, business people or people working in finance. So they want that kind of news. But I also feel like 
just focusing on the conflict misses the richness of this country. And, you know, if you're, you know, if there's not rockets flying or, or you're not, you know, located in the old city of Jerusalem, there's so much more going on here that is worth reporting that just gets ignored because people focus so much on the conflict. Right. So you've been here during several rounds of violence uh, in Gaza, tension between Iran and Israel uh, over developments in Syria, hmm. uh, a general election and many more events. Um what was the most interesting event for you to cover personally? There were a couple. Um, one was the nuclear archive, the Iran nuclear mm. archive that uh, that the Mossad found and secreted out of there. I was, uh, you know, blown away by the revelations uh, there. And I, I thought, you know, this is absolutely incredible. Um, I found that really, um, really eye-opening how... Something that I think many Israelis thought would shock the world and would spark a vigorous response was kind of, uh, you know, easily brushed aside by the rest of the world. And 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 I think uh, I think it's a shame because I think it was actually a major story and and an unbelievable uh, episode for the Mossad. So that was something memorable. Also recently with the Bereshit uh, moon capsule. So I went to uh, IAI, which for actually got extensive coverage around the world. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was there for what was supposed to be the moon landing and mm. and everybody was so excited and there was really this this feeling of, you know, amazing what this little country can achieve. And then, you know, they start saying, "Uh-oh, something's wrong." And then like a minute later, it crashed. And we were we were just we were just dumbfounded. People, you know, people's mouths were hanging open. We couldn't believe it. And then again, within a minute, the the atmosphere changed. The, you know, the the spirit was okay. We almost got there. You know, we we landed just not in one piece. We're going to do it next time. It it really, I thought, kind of was a window into the Israeli psyche. This this feeling of startup nation that you try. If you don't succeed, it's okay. You learn the lessons and you get back up and you do it again. And and so it wasn't necessarily the, you know the most important story that I covered here, but to me, it it it, it was it was really a window into Israel's soul. That's great. I really, when I asked the question and I prepared for the interview, I thought we were going to talk about, you know, the election or, mm. or something, you know, to do with terrorism. And all. Well, I guess I've covered a lot of those stories before. So yeah. somehow I found covering the conflict a bit tedious this time, I have to say. I mean, when I was here in the 90s for the Jerusalem Post and the Forward and others, I thought the Arab-Israeli conflict was the most fascinating thing in the world and just an endless source of stories. And, and now I come back and, you know, maybe I'm older or... More experienced is the term. I, I guess, but I, I just, you know, the conflict just just is a drag. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to say it, and and I, I don't get the feeling that things are moving in in the right direction at all. But one other story that really impacted me. I remember um, this was back in March of 2018 when uh, Abbas gave a speech, uh, and I don't know if you recall, he and Greenblatt kind of traded insults. Um, so you know we we wrote something about that and uh but you know the the editors were upset that we didn't focus more on the insults what we focused on was that Abbas said he's going to uh, impose new sanctions on the Gaza strip which they thought was not important and I said right, this, a, a this, this, this is this is going to cause a war wow you know the story wasn't really taken seriously but I think you know just a couple of weeks later when the marches of return began I, I you know I I think it was directly related to the sanctions and you know, the marches of return have been a really difficult thing to, to cover because, you know, objectively, the situation in Gaza is terrible. I mean, people live under terrible conditions. 
What are the causes of that? That that's really you know the key issue. And and in my mind, there are three causes. There's the Israeli blockade, Egyptian blockade, which you know we all write about all the time. There's the Palestinian Authority sanctions, which I think don't get enough attention. I mean, it's the Palestinian government which is you know imposing sanctions, hurting the people, and it's Hamas, which in my mind is the main component of Gaza suffering. I mean. It's their management of the strip. It's the way that they interact with all their neighbors, and 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 their use it, of the funds that they actually yeah. Have. And it was it was very challenging to tell that story in a way that I thought really reflected the complexity of the issue. I mean, it was easier to tell it as the blockade choking people off. It was much more difficult to get into print this idea that. It's a three-legged stool, and the Israeli blockade is not necessarily the main cause of what's going on. Right. As we're approaching the first leg of the Trump peace plan, uh, which is supposed to be this uh, economic workshop in Bahrain, do you think the media has a role in um, pushing for peace between Israel and the Palestinians? Not necessarily. No, I don't think we should be pushing for peace. I think we should be, you know, covering the plan in a fair and objective way. And you know, I'm a, I'm a little concerned. Like, you know, everybody's written off the plan already. I mean, you know, the Palestinians certainly have said that they're going to reject it and are mounting this effort to make it seem like it's going to be a ridiculous joke of a plan. And I feel like many reporters have bought into that, and they report it that way as if that's a foregone conclusion. But from the bits and pieces that, that we are getting off record from people, I think it's going to be a much more serious plan than, than, than people anticipate. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be a joke at all. I don't think it's going to succeed because, you know, as I say, I think the Palestinians will reject it. Um, so I don't think it's our role to push for it to succeed, but I think it is our role to push to really elucidate what is the alternative vision that it sets forth, you know, for the conflict? Is it a realistic vision? I mean, okay, it's different than the Clinton and, and Obama plans, but that doesn't mean that it's that it can't work. I mean, we always hear there's this international consensus how to reach peace, but it's been 25 years trying that consensus and it hasn't worked. So I'm not convinced that different ideas are are necessarily a terrible thing, but um, I don't get the feeling, whether in the press or in you know, or among readers, that there's really an open mind for for what's coming. Okay. So as we approach the conference itself, um, which you know is expected to bring in businessmen and uh, civil society leaders from the relevant parties, hopefully also from the Palestinians eventually, um, how does Bloomberg, as a financial paper, plan on covering it? Is there a different angle to it? I don't think so on something like this. I mean, you know, certainly the economic uh, portion of it, this, this conference in, in Bahrain that's coming up, I mean, we'll we'll send people to, to cover that. And I mean, we'll, you know, we've written about efforts to rehabilitate the Palestinian economy. Uh, when, when it comes to the actual political components of the plan, I would expect that we'll cover it probably, you know, pretty straight. I mean, hopefully our stories will be better than the competitions, but I'm not <laughs> sure that the tack will be significantly different. So let's turn back to you specifically for a second. Uh Um, (laughs) You've gone actually back and forth from working in hard news, politics and current affairs uh, to covering finance and economics. And now you're going back again. Um, Does each field give you a break from the other? Uh, Why the changes? Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of putting it, actually. I mean, um, uh, you know, the move to Singapore coming up, uh, you know, I have I have mixed feelings about it. But I think one of the things I'm looking forward to is that. You know, covering finance and economics, people just want to know if they're going to make money or lose money. They, they don't accuse you of bias. <laughs> you know, nobody's life is at stake. Uh, I think it will be something of a relief from the pressure cooker here where every story is really just heavily scrutinized. Um, 
and everybody's sure that you're too pro-Israel or too anti-Israel or, or, or whatever it is. So, yeah, covering finance and economics, I think, should be a bit more black and white. Um, I spent a long time in the Jewish media world, whether it's, you know, earlier at the Jerusalem Post and the Forward and then at, at, at JTA. So I've also experienced, you know, that world. So I've also kind of bounced back and forth between more more parochial Jewish concerns and general news. And maybe I'm a bit schizophrenic. I mean, you know, both of those elements, you know, really, you know, really appeal to me. Uh, they both have their pros and cons. Um, in general, I would say that I prefer working in the general press than in the ethnic press. It's just you have a broader perspective. There's a wider range of stories you can cover. The pay is better. You know, just uh, the, the organizations are stronger. Uh, so hopefully I'll be able to, to spend the rest of my career in the international media. Unless something pulls you back. <laughs> yes. Um, what actually makes you feel so at home in Asia? You keep going back. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I feel at home. Um, it's even possible that it's the fact that I don't feel at home, which is attractive in, mm. in a certain sense. Because, like, you know, when I worked in Asia before, I, I, so I was in Japan, Singapore, and Hong Kong, and nothing really mattered to me in a sense. You know, like, you know, you go to work, you do your job, you cover the, the economies and the markets, and then you go home at the end of the day, and that's it. Whereas here, I mean, I have different expectations. You know, because I'm Jewish— you know, I didn't take Israeli citizenship, but I would be eligible for it. And, and I care a lot about what happens here. So it's frustrating when you see things happening in the country that anger you or, or that you think, you know, the country's moving in the wrong direction. Everything matters and, and, and everything, you know, the stakes are higher. There, I don't, and I don't expect to fit in. I don't, I don't expect, you know, I'm not invested in the decisions that the government makes. So, okay, I do my job, you know, I go home at the end of the day and I'm with my family. It's it's kind of Rosh Katan. <laughs> you know, here it's like everything is so meaningful, but yeah. sometimes it's too much. Yeah, no, I get that. What do you think the world or Israelis need to know about the direction of Asian economics today? I think Asia is the future in many ways uh, economically. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, within, I don't know, what, what are the predictions, 20 years or something, China will be the, the largest economy in the world. Oh. Uh, and I think I think the Chinese have been very, very intelligent in the long-term decisions that they're making in terms of, you know, the industries of the future to invest in, uh, like AI and autonomous driving and clean energy, things like that. Also with their Belt and Road Initiative, basically building infrastructure throughout the world, which depends heavily on, on Chinese financing. And, and, and in some places, you know, if these countries can't meet the financing, China then takes over the infrastructure and, and owns it. So I think I think they've been extremely savvy. Uh, and I see the U.S. leadership both, you know, politically and economically flagging. And, and I, I really think, you know, in the next couple of decades, we're all going to be much more dependent on Asia than we realize. Also, I think many of the the problems that they are confronting in Asia in terms of like severely overcrowded cities, overburdened uh, infrastructure, thing, uh, you know, pollution, things like that are, are issues that other metropolises are going to have to face as well. So it's interesting to be on the ground and see how they're grappling with solutions now that, that could be relevant elsewhere either. Um, one other thing I would say when you asked, why do I feel at home in Asia? And I said, I don't quite feel at home, but still there's, there's just an intensity and a, an excitement there because it does feel like a place which is just ascending now to its place in the international order. I mean, populations tend to be very young there. People are working hard. I mean, it's you know the first generations in, in many of these countries, first generation to be kind of entering the middle class. They want to buy cars, want to buy TVs, air conditioners. Uh, there's just a lot of excitement, and that's that's really invigorating. And 
you know, you go back to the States and, and the Europe. I mean, that's, that's kind of normal for me, you know, whereas Asia is exciting. Before you leave us in Israel, do you have any advice for people dealing with Israel's economy? Having said what you said in mm. terms of the direction that things are going, what decision makers should be doing? Well, I think they need to invest a lot more in infrastructure here. I think the infrastructure here is is terrible. You know, whether it's, I mean, the public transport is really uh, lacking. Um, you know, roads are severely overcrowded and, and, and are going to become even more so. I remember when I was here in the 90s, there was this big, you know, uh, uproar over uh, what became Highway 6, uh, which almost didn't get built. And when I think now, if they hadn't built that, I mean, you wouldn't be able to drive from Tel Aviv to Haifa. So thank God they built that. But they need they need more roads. They need more, more train lines. Um, they need major investments there. The education system here is also really lacking, uh, which was a surprise to me. That I, I, I thought Israel had great schools. Uh, I've come to see that that's, that's not really the case. And that's... Um, that's a worry for the future because, you know, obviously if you're not producing good students, you know, I mean, Israel's brain power is its only natural resource. Right. And uh, so that's really worrisome. Also, look, I mean, so much of the budget here goes for defense. And if there's peace one day, hopefully that can change. Until that time, I don't think it's going to change. And, it, you know, it's a shame because, you know, the country is, you know, remarkably productive and innovative and energetic. And yet so much of the resources here – have to go to defense, and that that weighs on the entire economy. Right. I mean, from what I understand, a lot of the budget actually does go into education. The question is where the money's going. Yeah, and if it's if it's well spent, and look, then there's the whole issue of how much how much are they spending on settlements? How, how you know how much are they spending on yeshivas? Those I think are questions of the state's core values. Mm -hmm. uh, to what extent do you value? the religious education, and you're willing to fund this entirely separate school system, which doesn't feed into the job market or the army, but you do it because it's a Jewish value. You know, you have to find a level at which it's acceptable, but not let it become too rampant. And also with the settlements. I mean, I was having a discussion with somebody the other day who said, you know, every penny that goes there isn't going into, uh, you know, social spending here. Which is true, but on the other hand, every spending that goes for roads is also not going for you know. So, you know, money is fungible. But you know, certainly, I, I can understand people who are upset that uh, you know that their tax money and, and their budgets are, are going for settlements that they consider uh, illegal and unwise. So, that's an issue the states at some point going to have to resolve. Right, all about how you divide the cake. Um, so if Asia's not home mm. and you love Israel <laughs> and you've lived here in the past, do you see yourself one day coming back, uh, continuing to raise your family here? It's a possibility. Um, it's interesting because I was just reading somewhere that if you get over the three-year hump, you're more likely to stay. And I'm right at the th – I'm just, I'm, I'm just past the three-year mark and, and I've decided to leave because – Can you accrue the time? When <laughs> I, I wish. I wish. But it's true that like the first couple of years were difficult. I mean the Israeli bureaucracy I, I think is just insane. Mm -hmm. And especially not being a citizen, not having a – not having a, a Tudat Zahut, an ID card – made things just ridiculously difficult in terms of paying bills online, being able to register for like a cable company or a cell phone company, right. just crazy things. I mean, I, I've lived in a number of countries and, you know, they, they give you an ID number even if you're not a citizen. It, it may, and here just things are, are so difficult. So so the first couple years, I was really frustrated by that. Um, and then, by the way, when we had a baby, uh, we also, because we're not citizens, faced – 
really complicated situation, um, which took the threat of a lawsuit to resolve. I mean, in it, terms of what health care? No, in terms of naming the baby and being <sighs> able to to use the use the name that, that that we wanted. It was it was really it was insane, and there's no reason why. No. The system here has to be so user unfriendly, and I think you know. Okay, many people will come here just out of Zionism, but you know, people who have other options will compare the quality of life here. You know, will compare and contrast. That's why you have to come when you're young and stupid, and well, eighteen years old. <laughs> there's definitely something to be said for that. Also, because you make your friends here in the university and right. in the army, and, and and this and that. If you come later, then, then then it's more difficult. But you know, all that being said, there is a special feeling here that you know. I do feel at home here in certain ways that I don't feel in the States or in Asia or, or, or wherever it is. And those are those are kind of intangible things that, that will always draw me back here. So it's possible that I would I would come back here with my family at some point. Sure. Not ruling it out. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just one last question. If your daughter comes home one day and says, Abba, Dad, I want to be a journalist. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> What's your response? I would tell her not to make the same mistake that I made and that my father before me made, incidentally. He was also a journalist. <laughs> and he ended up switching careers, um, I guess, in his 40s. Uh, I've made it you know, longer than that. But um, I don't know. Journalism is an industry that's just in a crisis. And you know, even in the best of times, it's difficult to make a living as a journalist. And now – the internet has just, you know, completely upended the industry. Um, you know, I, I have cousins or, you know, children of friends who ask my advice about going into journalism. And I say, look, unless you really, really have that fire in your belly to to break news and to be the first person to know something, I would look for something else, to be right. honest. And, you know, beyond just the difficulties of it, you're a bystander, you know, writing about what other people are doing rather than doing yeah. something yourself. Yeah. And and there's a certain sense in which that's frustrating, which the ideal of a journalist is to negate yourself, to negate your own view, your own perception. And there's something really unnatural about that. And, you know, no, OK, no journalist is 100 percent objective. We all come, you know, we, we, we see things that are within our frame. At some point in my life, I would like to be in a position where I'm actually – doing something, working for, for some kind of a cause rather than just writing about other people doing it. So hopefully my daughter will uh, <laughs> won't make the same mistake I did. <laughs> but, I'm, you know, it, it's, also been, it's also been a really rich and rewarding career. I mean, I, I, I joke about it, but I've been lucky to have amazing experiences. When was this uh, golden age of journalism that you speak of? You know, my father tells me stories from the early 60s when he was writing for this um, – it was a weekly newspaper slash magazine out of Washington. They would send him to like Eastern Europe for six weeks and just go and travel and come back and write, you know, a series of stories on what you find. And they sent him to Latin America. I mean, you know, for again, for like a month at a time. Those type of jobs are very, very few and far between now. <laughs> Right. Um, so, and you're expected to tweet your way through. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think that was that was probably the golden age. Wow, okay. Michael Arnold, Bureau Chief for Bloomberg Israel, soon to be economics editor for Bloomberg in Southeast Asia. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. And good luck. Thank you. Thank you.